0: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I have a super exciting episode that I just couldn't wait to bring to you. I have an extra special guest. I was able to meet up with at VMX. We weren't in the fishbowl, but we were face-to-face. And let me tell you, he's such a cool guy. It was a great experience. And that is Dr. Dave Nickel. If you're not familiar with Dave, definitely take a good listen to his bio because he's got a lot of really good resources and encouragement for the veterinary profession through a variety of media, including VetX International and his own podcast. Now I'm most familiar with Blunt Dissection, which I love, but he's got several others out there as well. I reached out to Dave because one of my favorite parts of his messaging is his positivity surrounding the veterinary profession. One thing we have in common is that both of us agree, looking back on our careers, if we knew then, what we know now, we would have made the exact same decision. We absolutely love being veterinarians and have never looked back. And I really wanted to reflect on some of this positivity and bring it to all of you. So I really hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did and you get a lot out of it. He's just a joy to spend time with and and makes you walk away just feeling good about things. Dr. Dave Nickel is an expert in growing successful veterinary practices. His areas of expertise include strategy, leadership, marketing, and human resource management. Dr. Nickel has been a practicing veterinarian for more than two decades. The first decade of his career was spent working as an associate in the UK's best group practices. Since then, he's worked as a clinician, manager, leader, practice owner, four times over practice owner, and investor. During this time, Dr. Nickel managed both large and small teams of veterinarians. The largest team of doctors directly reporting to him was 18, and he's also worked as a performance coach with a 50-doctor practice. In September 2011, Dr. Nickel purchased his first veterinary hospital. The practice was rife with issues such as cultural problems and financial issues, but Dr. Nickel created clinical and human resource and marketing systems that allowed the business to grow to a two-site practice with a 250% increase in revenue within three years. The culture of the practice became one of achievement and fun, not bullying and pain, something we should all strive for. In April of 2015, Dr. Nichols successfully exited his business and worked as Chief Veterinary Officer before relocating back to the UK in September of 2016. In addition to his in-the-trenches experience, Dr. Nickel is considered an opinion leader within the industry. He published his first book, The Yellow Pages Are Dead in 2011, and his second title, So You're a Vet, Now What?, a book for all final year vets and new graduates, was released in August of 2017. Dr. Nickel writes the popular Hamster Wheel blog, produces the Blunt Dissection podcast, and contributes feature articles to the Vet Business Journal in the UK and Veterinary Team Brief in the USA. He's a regular speaker at vet conferences globally, delivering inspiring talks with a unique blend of humor, passion, and pragmatism. Could not agree more with that description. Like I said, he was a lot of fun to talk to, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. All right. Well, I'm joined by Dave Nickel, which is so exciting because this is the first time we're meeting in person. But um, your voice is very familiar to me because I love <laughs> your podcast, One Dissection. So thank you for thank, being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Kess. Yeah.
0: we're so happy to have you. I think I think one of the things that really made me want to reach out to you and have this conversation is um, your love of being a veterinarian. Mm. Um, so I I love being a veterinarian. You know, we've our industry has its flaws and there's we're hemorrhaging people for a lot of reasons, but when people talk to me about what I do, I'm like, I have no regrets. I love being a vet and I think it's such an amazing career. And I feel like I hear that echoed in when I listen to your podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm very, I would use the word proud. Like I'm very proud of of the work that uh, we all do. I think it's an incredible, it's incredible work and the diversity of that work is, is amazing. And, and a lot of society really wouldn't function without the work the veterinarians do. And I, I think we sometimes forget the importance of the work that we do. So it's been a good, it's been a wonderful career for me. I would do it all again in a heartbeat tomorrow. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I feel very privileged to have been here.
0: I'm in the same boat, I'm in the same boat. I just, the the connections that we get to form
1: oh, with people, incredible.
0: with animals. Like I it was a little bit, I was glad the lights were down in the opening talk here because when the dogs came out and well, so you, you said you didn't make it to that talk. There were dogs that are doing all kinds of tricks and they're catching Frisbees and they're jumping over, you know, huge obstacles huge and all heights. of this. Yeah. I was like, I was starting to to tear up because I was like, look at that, like, look at the relationship and the trust and like, like, that's so cool that we can get dogs to do that. I can't, I don't have the patience, but I can convince them to let me, you know, (laughs) stick a needle into them and get blood. So.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not a good dog trainer, but I have always loved working with them. So
0: yeah, they're, (laughs) they're
1: great creatures.
0: Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about You know, I think you and I have both have have had the privilege of talking to just a a lot of people in the industry with a lot of different perspectives and experiences. I kind of want to dive into like some of the issues that are talked about frequently, like where are we falling apart? Where do we go from here? And, you know, and just also pivot and talk about some of the positives in Mm. the industry because I think it's so easy to focus on the negatives, but there's so much good
1: there is. I think we've talked ourselves into a very negative spiral at the minute. You know, I actually have a phrase, pivot to positive, uh, which is more about trying to find ways through difficult situations. As a, as a, just as a little nudge. But I, 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 really think that we have pivoted quite far to the negative in veterinary practice, and and there are a number of reasons for that. You know, I mentioned that if I had my time again, I would do it all again. And of course, there is, a, there is a caveat to that, that when I did it, things are very different now to when I did it, and what, what sometimes strikes me is when I speak to uh, people that graduated in my day, and I graduated in 1998. I graduated in a country where education is still free, tertiary education is still free, so I did not pay for my degree. I, I had student loans to fund my way through. Uh, some of the living costs of college, but the actual education was free and remains free in Scotland if you're from Scotland It's a something I think I'm really proud of that, that, that the country has been able to do because that does it Should increase access now. That's a whole different story in terms of <laughs> Scottish diversity, but <laughs> um, But it, it means people can get there more easily from perhaps less advantaged backgrounds that does not set Scotland up as the utopia of uh, wonderful diversity and inclusion I, I would we'd also want to say that sure. because veterinary medicine still is a very elite place right. to hang out an elitist place to hang out but but the experience that our students have now compared to the experience I had is I think we have to acknowledge that's very different not necessarily in terms of education pressure because I think we always had to learn an awful lot of stuff But I wasn't doing it with a $150,000, $250,000 gorilla on my back worrying about, am I going to make that exam? Because if I don't, I've just squandered X amount of dollars. That's a big stress on your shoulders when you're very young. And I don't think you're experiencing client pressure at that point in your degree. You're, You're experiencing work pressure, yes. But in the context of that debt, I do think there's a change there. And also, the other big change is the access to social media. And, and so the, I wasn't connected into the sort of zeitgeist of what was going on in veterinary medicine generally. I got the sense of it from the local practitioners. Sure. And they seemed to love their jobs. And not always, there was, a couple, there was always a couple of vets who, right, right there were bad <clears> bits <throat> to it. But they seemed to really enjoy it. So now the, our students and all of us are connected into everything on social. And so we are just working our adrenal glands and our, our, our sort of sense of not being good enough by comparing our lives to everybody else's lives. I think you put those two things in, the debt and the comparison element, and it's no wonder that, that our students are stressed. And if our students are stressed before they get into the real work, like what does that do for us further down the track? Um, that's, a real, that's a real concern. And I, I do think that, that that is one of, you know, I think there's two places we hemorrhage talent. One is early stage burnout, you know, getting through that first three years till you actually get good. I think we do lose people there. But with the, the ongoing corporatization of, of uh, veterinary medicine, you know, and, and in the United Kingdom, where I practice, it's about 70, 75% corporate owned now. In the US, there's, you know, that's, that's it's advancing and, you know, where it will get to here, uh, I'm, I, I can't predict. But but what we do see is people who would have been mentors bringing on partners into businesses, that model is changing, and now you have uh, those those people selling out uh, and the mentors then leaving the profession fairly quickly after that. And actually, if you look broadly at the, the, uh, the economy, it's the 50, 60-year-old demographic, particularly accelerated through COVID, that just thought, what am I doing? I can afford to retire, so I'm going to retire. And you lose so much of the mentor capacity in that segment that that the younger generation require to bridge the knowledge gap and to support them through that I, I do think there's that's part of the interface. You arrive more stressed, you you you're arriving into a system that's been under pressure and at a time when you need more support, there's actually potentially less around. And it's not really a giant surprise that we've gotten to where we are.
0: Yeah, it's not really a far, you know, cry from A to B to say, of course this is how it went down. Mm. You said a couple of things that, you know, made me think. One was your mention of social media, because sometimes I feel like when it comes to social media, you get the voices that'll talk the loudest. <laughs> and so we're connected to each other, but sometimes the positive messages get lost. And, you know, we're going here to vent. We're going here to, which not to say that, that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it helps to right. have support when you end up in a, in a bad situation, but- yeah. Sometimes I see some of that messaging just turn it almost like an echo chamber.
1: It, it does, and it gets toxic pretty fast. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why we've come to believe that clients are the enemy. That's a narrative that's out there. It, it's a it's a shockingly bad narrative because uh, we, we've done some research with with graduates on the things that really energize them and the things that drain them. And the number one thing that energizes the graduates and the study work we've done uh, are are, uh, sorry, I'll start with the ones that drain them. The drain them are, are clients, and it's, it's supposed angry clients, and the things that energize them the most are appreciative clients. Well, what's the difference between you know, an angry and appreciative client? It's the way you handle them. It's your communication skills, it's your empathy, it's your compassion, and those are all skills that, mm-hmm. that veterinarians either have or they don't have. But rather than take ownership over that, We'll go on Facebook, we'll, 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 we'll bitch and moan and complain about the clients, and suddenly the echo chamber says all clients are bad. Right. And so you're going into your next client interaction thinking clients are the enemy. What do you think is going to happen in that situation? Versus, okay, well, maybe maybe but some of the clients that we really like are fun and, and we love that. What can I do to make more of those mm-hmm. clients fun? And yeah, if you're you're stressed, there are systemic issues that are problems, like not having enough time to do your work or doing your work without getting lunch or without getting a break is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. That's not okay.
0: It's not sustainable. It's
1: not, not at all sustainable. But That's also fixable with leadership. So if leadership can work on making systems better and profitable and sustainable, and vets can work on communication skills as a subset skills alongside their clinical, or really a foundation alongside their clinical, I just think we can move our way out of this without too much trouble. Like This still can be an awesome place for people to work, but it's going to take both leaders and doctors and technicians to work together uh, to achieve that aim and everyone take ownership of what they can control and have the power to to take ownership of. I just don't know like that's going to take a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it's a long way from where we're at just now but i do think we're making progress like the leadership message is getting out there there's a lot of work being done on mental health and well-being which is great but we need to move into a stage of we will be mentally a lot happier and healthier if we have the skills to stop the stress right and to make sure you know and stress comes down to your resources to cope in a situation being overwhelmed. Well, if, if you lack the skills of communication, you're quickly gonna get overwhelmed in the exam room. If you lack the skills of organization, you're gonna run behind in your, your, your exams and now you're gonna be stressed and now and clients are gonna be more grumpy with you. So I feel like if we can move the conversation from, from well-being to the skills that allow us to have a happier time, which are gonna be communication skills, emotional intelligence skills, gonna be time management skills, we will get a lot further a lot faster. And, and people, sometimes people yell at me when I say stuff like that. It's like, you're gaslighting the vets. And I'm like, if, if that is your view, you have got a rather large problem, because no, I'm working with the practice owners on, on the structural elements, the systemic elements. That's where I spend most of my time. But if you're unwilling to see that your own skill deficit is, is a large part of the problem, then you are robbing yourself of a lot of opportunity and empowerment to be able to, to free yourself of the stress that happens in veterinary medicine.
0: It sounds like, I mean, your your messaging seems clear, straightforward, just every like you said, everybody take ownership of what you can control. Um, client education being one of those, talked about this messaging that clients are the enemy, like getting the word out about what it is that we do every day because yeah. most clients have no idea. So getting education out to the public about what we do and then, like you said, looking within ourselves of, I don't have enough time to do my work. Is this a a structural issue Mm. or am I not, are there things I can change in the way that I'm doing them to help move a little bit more efficiently? And there's probably multiple answers to that question. Mm. Do you think there's something to be said for like, Veterinary medicine is a stressful career, no matter what your role is in it. Like it's just gonna be stressful yes. to some degree.
1: Yes, hundred like, percent. I remember as a graduate, I I got I was really I was really stressed as a graduate. Yeah. Like I remember vividly the stress dreams I would have. Like I would sit bolt upright, cold sweats in the night, and not even awake. Mm-hmm. I was doing exams in yeah, my sleep. Me too. Right? You were doing yeah. that. And I would yeah. like I And would, then you
0: go back to sleep and then you feel like you're sleeping on the job talking, and you wake up again. Right. And my, it's horrible.
1: Like I'm like my girlfriend would go, what are you doing? And I'd be asleep. And I would go, Shh, I'm doing i I'm doing exams. <laughs> it would really freak her out.
0: <laughs> or doing surgery. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I ever did that.
1: But but um but yeah and that and that was that was it you know it was there I would I would actually you know I, I got sick more like a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that indicates that you're under quite a lot of strain and pressure. And there's just no doubt about it. It's a complicated, demanding profession, and we—none of us are born with, with you know, we—you you could be more gifted at communicating, but none of us are born skilled communicators. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it is a skill, and and so yeah, I, I think there's no way for us to say this is going to be easy. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But we knew it wasn't going to be easy when we signed up. Like we knew this was a a tricky job. But if if we can get the foundation skill set, and then, and I write about this in my book, uh, Story of Vet now, what for, for Graduates. You know, rather than try and be good at everything right away, accept that that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Also, let go of perfection. That's just a mirage. Like, that's just, that's...
0: Oh, and it's so hard for veterinary <laughs> professionals. <laughs> I, of all, I mean, aren't we all, like, or not, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize, but aren't so many of us just born perfectionists?
1: Well, or, or, or made perfectionists through, through the, the drive of our parents, you know, who knows exactly why but you're right we are we are driven to because we had to be driven to succeed to get to right. where we're going so that's perhaps a, a strategy that served us well in university and of course that's we're imprinting early on in our careers life patterns that you know work habits that will that will last for a lifetime they're very hard to unpick but it's not a strategy once you meet the wibbly wobbly world of life where right. we're not on the educational rails and it's not about passing an exam and stuff doesn't look like it looks in the books then you've we've got to get like life smart not book smart and that requires us to let go of the notion of perfectionism because it stops us trying it, the fear of failure stops us trying and stops us growing and i, and I think that's the wall that a lot of a lot of our our younger doctors are coming up against now mm. is that fear of failure it gets a bit too hard and not knowing, okay, is this for me? Is general practice for me? And that's when you need your mentor. That's when you need somebody to put an arm around you and go, keep going. Like, mm-hmm. this is hard. It's meant to be hard. But you're doing worthy work. And if you keep going, then then you're going to progress. And there comes a point where you look back and you go, huh, if I, fo- if I focused on, let's say dentistry as a skill set, let's focus on that for the first three to six months and get good at that. You'd learn transferable skills for surgery. You'd be great at communicating about dentistry and feel very confident. And that confidence can then leach out into other areas and be a really positive contagion for learning in other areas. And so you focus on something every three months for the first three years of your life. You'd have put 12 subjects under a spotlight. You would be a pretty competent vet that period of time. Nobody should be expecting to be that after 12 months or six months. And I, th- I think it maybe took me five years as a, as a practitioner to feel comfortable in my skin. Sure. I never had the perfectionist problem, though, so I was, <laughs> I was always the person like making up the numbers at the bottom of the class, looking over my shoulder for the, for the resets or the, fail, the fails. And uh, I sort of scraped my way through vet school until I got to the clinical years where it was about speaking with humans, and then suddenly I'd found my, my, the place I felt I could do well.
0: Absolutely. I want to jump back real quick Mm. to where you're talking about. Well, I mean, just now we're talking about letting go of perfectionism, but you're talking about focusing on the different skills. I think one thing I found in my own career is not every skill is for me. Like I'm (laughs) really not, I'm not the person you want opening up an abdomen ever. Um, I, can I do it? Have I done it? Yes, absolutely. Do I break out in a cold sweat and lose sleep the night before knowing I have to do a, like, I'll tell you a story. I did a, um, I did a dog spay. I think she weighed a grand total of eight pounds. So I mean it'd be hard to like not tie those off well. Like those are little bitty vessels. Absolutely. Like it's not that hard to yeah. tie them off. Yeah. I didn't sleep for two days after I spayed that dog. So last just
1: about time. let them bleed themselves and no, they be fine. I, no, no, no. Know, <laughs> oh, I'm saying. not advocating <laughs> yeah. that, but you know, I'm like, okay, well, I didn't
0: do that. But yeah, that was essentially it. I was like, yep. these aren't massive garden hoses that I'm no, trying to no, tie off here. Right. I didn't sleep for two days. So, and that was recent, that was recent, I've done hundreds of space, but I just have learned that over the years, not every skill is for me, and I don't have to be good at everything, and I have wonderful colleagues who are, and so... Right. For me, it took finding a practice that was supportive of that. So I didn't yeah. have to do every skill because that was a large source of stress for me and I can focus on what I'm good at.
1: I think it's a really, it's a nice point to make. And and there will be people listening for whom general practice isn't their jam. Sure. And and that's okay. Like, you're not a failure if that's the case. Oh, yeah. Um, you That's a brilliant thing about veterinary medicine and having a veterinary degree that, that, that you've got, the world is your oyster mm-hmm. in so many ways. But I agree with you. Like, we are all... We're all born with gifts and learning what those areas are, and and that sometimes takes a long while. Like, graduates often ask me, how, how do I know where my, my things, where it's going to be? And and I really think, like, just suck it and see, go and try as many sweets in the sweetie shop as you can, the, the candy shop, sorry, and uh, and see what, see what you really enjoy, and it's finding that intersection of stuff that really floats your boat and, and you love doing, that actually you've got a bit of technical competence and you feel... This, this feels like it's like a, a glove that fits and then hopefully that's in the area then of stuff that people actually need and stuff that they'll pay for and then you've got a pretty successful career ahead go. of you so you know but, but it's yeah it's, it, it, it takes time and I have to say orthopedics for me like just that would be a horror show
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, sure. I never even attempted. Yeah. I think I did one FHO. Um,
1: and I was, You're just was still scarred cat. by it, not <laughs> yes. just the cat. It was you. on a cat. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: We were all scarred after that. The cat did great, but yeah. um, but I just was like, never again. It's And, and I mean, of the orthopedics, yeah. that's a pretty basic one. And now yeah. it's just I felt that way about
1: diabetes as well. It's just really? Medicine wasn't really my jam either.
0: Oh, so. man, I would picture you being really good at diabetes management or, because of the communication part
1: you, of it. You, you, would, you would picture wrong. <laughs>
0: Well, I guess one thing that I did want to touch on that I think is really interesting and is becoming a topic of conversation now kind of goes along the lines of saying general practice is not for everybody. Specialty medicine is not Mm. for everybody. And there's also all kinds of different medicine, at least, you know, thinking here in the United States, if you practice in an urban versus a suburban versus a rural area and everything in between, there can be a lot of different kinds of medicine that we practice. And I feel like I've heard more of the conversation of, Almost like giving ourselves permission to adapt our style to mm. the client's hell that we're serving. Yes. And I think if you feel like you have to do everything for every pet and then you have clients telling you no or you can't for whatever reason, that can be a source of stress. So, so really kind of understanding who it is that you're serving and what, what they want.
1: Utterly essential. Utterly essential. The phrase gold standard care has been one of the biggest disservices to veterinarians that there could be. Well-intentioned, I'm sure, utterly disastrous in the real world. It's another form of perfectionism when you think about it. It's like, you know, it's shoot for the thing, the holy grail mm-hmm. in every case. And, of course, that's that's what you're taught at university. It's an utter disaster in practice. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try and do the best. I think you, you should. But it, it, it isn't the way the real world works, you know. And, and you know, you do have those other things to consider, not just the, 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 the thing the animal needs in the diagnosis. But you've got the money that the family could afford. You've got their physical ability to be able to deploy a treatment. Let's talk about diabetes. It's an expensive thing to diagnose, manage. Mm-hmm. So there's a physical necessity to bring animals to the hospital to have bloods more recently, uh, fairly frequently. There's a physical necessity to be able to draw up insulin to be able to mm-hmm. read a, a, a syringe, a fairly mm-hmm. small uh, syringe that, that the visually impaired may struggle with. If you have some sort of tremble or Parkinson's disease, well, you're not realistically going to be able to do that twice a day injection. So you've got, you've got sort of time issues, you've got physical issues. Emotionally, if, if you're terrified of needles, oh, sure. it's not going to happen. Right, so It's just a horrible recommendation. And then finally, and we said the, the financial budget as well. So you've, you're doing a dance with the clients to understand what have they got going on? How can I tailor my recommendation to fit with the, the moving? And we call it spectrum of care now. And right. I think that's a wonderful term. Yeah. But it's really, what is, what is the moving gold standard for this particular situation? Not the ivory tower gold standard, thou shalt do that. Because that does two things. Number one, it sets you up for fights with clients when they can't yeah. afford that. Number two, it sets you up to think like you're a failure if yep. you're not delivering that kind of medicine. And that is not true. So, so uh, you know, I love the, the, the mention particularly of, uh, and I, I think there are great clients everywhere, but there are certain demographics in certain parts of you know, the country. And I actually worked for most of my career in fairly low socioeconomic places that were quite high on employment. Mm-hmm. And so you had to be good at explaining things. You had to be good at MacGyvering your way through a case. And it's
0: amazing what animals can recover from with MacGyvering.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people forget the old adage that about 80% of, of what you see in practice will get better in spite of what you
0: Right, do. I remember being taught that in school.
1: Right, so find the 20% that won't and worry about that. The rest of it will likely take care of itself mm-hmm. and do no harm. There's the other, the other tenant that is so, so important. Nobody ever said, and the Hippocratic Oath does not say, uh, work yourself into the ground. It does not say do gold standard medicine at all times. It, it, that's, not, that's not included in it. It's, you know, entrust yourself to make good decisions for the animals entrusted to your care. But you have to take a, take a sort of temperature of what is going on with that family experience around that. And do not be afraid of plan B, C, D, mm-hmm. and even E if necessary.
0: And when you think about taking the temperature of what's going on, I, th- I think that's something we're probably pretty good at, mostly as veterinary professionals, from the standpoint of we do nonverbal communication for a living. Mm. So I think a lot of times when you're when you're sitting there and you're having a conversation, uh, it, especially if you've dedicated time to being a good communicator and understanding what it is that you're you're talking about, I think there's probably a lot of us out there who can get a sense from the client pretty quickly of where things are going. So feeling comfortable to to tailor your recommendations to what that client is asking of you and what that pet needs. Yeah. And and I say when I say what that pet needs, I mean in the context of the whole family dynamic, that relationship Completely, between the yeah. pet and the family.
1: Yeah, I think it is a very holistic thing to think about. What what, what, do this, what is this? The family require of me in this moment? And of course, we are the the guardian of the pet welfare, and sometimes we do have to advocate, and a family Mm -hmm. doesn't make a good decision, and then we can get into conflict. But again, those situations are relatively uncommon if we've communicated clearly. I'm not sure I completely agree that there's many skilled communicators in veterinary medicine, though. I I do feel like there's a lot of people... I've sort of watched several, probably a couple of thousand exams with doctors... And it never fails to amaze me how many utterly fail to read the room. Huh. Uh, and, and, and often it's time pressure, um, but the, the, the lack of the easy wins in an examination, starting off by introducing yourself, shaking somebody by the hand, asking them how their day is or asking them a question about their family before getting into the exam. Uh, and really just take, trying to take an emotional read on the room. Or the number of veterinarians that have done an exercise to go, let's actually talk about the, and there's probably 10 different, or maybe even less than that, ways an animal's gonna present into your examination, whether it's a vaccination, you know, first vaccination, puppy kitten, booster examination, ill pet, uh, euthanasia. It's not a ton more situations where you go. And if it's an ill pet diagnosis not made, ill pet diagnosis made. Okay, okay so what are their emotional states gonna be in each of those moments? Like You can very, very easily predict what those things are gonna be. And then if you've got you know either emotional intelligence innately, and that's the great thing about emotional intelligence, it's a learned skill, but you can also fake it. It's called acting, and what actors are doing is they're they are not experiencing the things they're portraying. They're very good at, at pretending. We can do that in the exam room as well. So if the you know the puppy owner coming in is going to be excitement maybe less with a bit of trepidation because there's a needle coming or is the is the dog going to find something wrong? And so, you know, be excited for them as well. And and you'll, you'll form an emotional bridge with that person and then trust can form that the pet owner coming in with their animals unwell. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be, you know, concerned. They're going to want to be, you know, listened to. You know, almost all situations, human beings want to be listened to and understood. Mm-hmm. You know, when a, when a client is angry or upset about something, again, listening's the way to go. But so many doctors try and defend or dismiss or don't listen and they get straight to the, the defense mode before they've actually done the listening mode and it, it just blows up into bigger and bigger situations than it needs to be. So I, I think if, like my message into, into the, the veterinary community is, if you wanna really enjoy your career, then focus on communication skills, soft skills, professional skills. And do that not at the absolute expense of your clinical learning, but do not, do not ignore those skills and just charge off into the clinical well, thinking, well, if I just learn this bit more, it will get better, it'll get better, it'll get better. It won't. All you'll do is spend more time and money running around and you, you only have, you know, it's like everyone turns up a sand jar when you're in a stressful situation. And I don't know where the, the you know, the hourglass runs out for you But if you don't get out of that stressful situation, the hourglass will run out and you will burn out, guaranteed. So if you have not got the skills and just chasing the clinical uh, monkey around the the, the race isn't doing it for you in terms of reducing your stress, then it's very likely that's not the skill set that you need to focus on. And the other skill set, and the one that, that I think is almost guaranteed to make things better is how do I communicate with my fellow human beings? Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a lot about clients, but actually it's about team as well. How do I communicate with people? Because when you can communicate effectively, understand people, and base entry level is, make people feel listened to and valued, boy, like every, like the world is a fun place when you can do that. It's a really hard place when you just generate conflict.
0: Yeah, I would agree, absolutely. It's funny that you say that because we're talking about Kevin Bacon here. And um, <laughs> he... At the end of his keynote, someone asked, you know, what what advice would you give to, say, a a young veterinarian uh, or something like that, having been on the client side of things? And he said something along the lines of, I can imagine that some of the relationships that you form and having to be there for clients can be draining, but I can tell you that that is a huge draw and... You know, a lot of people when they that he he was speaking from his own personal experience when when he talks to people and they choose a certain clinic, it has to do with the personality of the doctors. Yeah. So just, you know, that that kindness, that empathy. And I feel like I hear that pretty much universally, like medically, you know, of course, we want to do the best medicine, but yeah. you can get away with a lot if you have those communication skills and you can make people feel listened to and valued and like they and their pet are important.
1: I think that's one of the things that makes me the saddest right now is when I hear the, you know, the generational conflict is the other, one of the other stories we have going on, where, you know, the the, you get the boomers getting beaten up because they've been beating up or we've been beating up on millennials and Gen Z (laughs) for forever. It's no wonder. Right. And 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 what's really really, um, I think I think sad is that as you get older, medicine changes. And there's always a risk, I always felt this risk, like, you know, when am I going to be the, the vet that's doing the things that are like 20 years old and worked then and not now? And and they may still work, but you're getting judged, right? You're getting judged right. and you're getting judged by a group of people who uh, might have more up to date medicine, but are falling apart because they're they're burning out. And and in fact, these two groups of people can learn so much from each other. You know, the the, the senior generations have got the communication skills and the personality and the relationship skills down. And and we're different now. We're a much more nomadic society and mm-hmm. population. So sticking around in a, in a town for 20, 30 years, like here's me talking about that. Like I meant to never leave Scotland and work outside of Scotland for a day in my career. And I, I really work in it for a day in my career and I worked in London and in Sydney and now I live in Brighton and my career is spent traveling the world speaking and so you know I I was very much inspired by the Harriet notion but I don't think we can I'm not trying to hark back to that but boy we should not lose because what those guys had was outstanding communication skills. Sure. The medicine maybe lagged behind, and maybe that's part of the challenge now. There's so much weight of pressure and knowledge to know medicine that we've we've really moved the needle to focusing on that a lot more. And I think if we move the needle just a little bit back in the middle, and that can be mentoring from both sides, then we would be so much stronger. So, you know, that that would be kind of like. That'd be my, my wish. And I'm sort of in the middle of both generations now, so sure. I feel like I'm in the middle of watching grenades getting thrown <laughs> over me. And I'm, like, I'm a oh, millennials. So
0: gen- you know. Everything after Gen X is a millennial. Like uh, right. there's like no other generation <laughs> after that. Just everything wrong is the millennials.
1: Right. And it feels and that's not a it's not a kind or a fair narrative. So I, I can understand where the, the conflict is, but it's it, again it's not it's not healthy and just as when i'm working with practice owners who you know are, are inclined to blame millennials i'll say well <laughs> good luck with that dude <laughs> if you want to run a practice and and have them have them on your team i also say to the younger generation look if you th- if you are dismissing this person as not being somebody you can learn from because the medicine might be slightly outdated you just watch how the relationships with clients are with this person there's a reason they had a 30 year career and and there's a reason they didn't burn out, as a reason you are. And it's the relationship skills that are a big part of it. Now, you know, we've mentioned the, 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 the money, the money monster sure. and the debt sure. monster. We've, we've mentioned uh, the pressure that social media has on there. You know, there are changes and we must recognize that. But goodness me, like the, the, and the money will look after itself if you have enough time. Veterinary medicine is a really well rewarded career and it is not a badly paid career. And that's that's significantly improved in the last little while. It was never a badly paid career, but there are rewards beyond that. That if we can just, and I think mentoring is is a huge part of the the answer. If we can if we can re really strong mentor, and, and I, I love to say mentor mentor mentee relationships, because I think I think that implies that one side is going to be teaching and the other learning. I don't think that's how it is. I think I think both groups can learn from each other. And I think we would find ourselves in a much healthier place if we did that.
0: Just listen to each other and work with each other, but both, you know, younger generations, older generations, veterinarians and clients, veterinarians, staff, owner staff, you know, just everybody, just just be nice. If we
1: could be, you know, I'd go beyond that. And I would say, be curious. Because what we are right now is we're judgmental. And I think judgment implies you're right and somebody else is wrong. And I think curiosity is much more about exploring the the the, the realities that, that each other have. And I think that's that that's likely to lead to much a coming together rather than a pushing apart.
0: It makes me think of conversations that I have with clients sometimes, and and talking to them where they'll throw something that sounds totally out of left field at me, and I'm like, "Why? Where did that come from?" And I think some of the most fun conversations I have are the Tell me more about that. Tell me what you read tell me what you think let's let's dive into that and it's I mean it's led to some some crazy com- you know I don't maybe uh, I shouldn't say crazy some some really interesting conversations but but and, you know and I say that a little bit tongue-in cheek but you know some actually really interesting conversations
1: Oh yeah yeah I mean that's it I mean it's a great question you know hmm that's odd and okay well let's not dismiss that and and instead go. Tell tell me more about that. I'm curious to hear, hear more about your perspective.
0: I think you learn about you learn a lot about their values mm-hmm. and where they're coming from, and yep. and what it is that is important to them that you can help them achieve and and just solidify that relationship.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: Well, I feel like. If I don't wrap this up, we're gonna sit here for two more hours talking about the woes of, of veterinary medicine. So I, I wanna wrap up with one more question, kind of along the lines of growing pains. Like it sounds like we're in this phase of growing pains of making this transition into whatever the future of veterinary medicine looks like. What do you see for the future of veterinary medicine? I'm gonna really put you on the spot here.
1: Yeah, it, I am I, um, in a sense, I don't like to answer that because I, like, I don't feel like, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm smart enough to answer a question <laughs> like that. Uh, I I've, I think I think we're in trouble right now. Like I, I believe veterinary medicine is in a really difficult spot. I don't see how we can continue to lose people and have this level of discontent and not be making the systemic changes we need to make so that people continue to leave and, and you know there are very few practices in the land that are not operating understaffed and 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 don't have there are no recruitment answers mm-hmm. forthcoming from many practices not all i would have to say but many so that has me worried because as as the pressure ratchets up more people are likely to leave than to stay and so we we really have to start taking a, a lot more responsibility and i think this starts at leader level so I think what I, what I hope happens and what will happen, maybe two, in fact, almost definitely, will be two completely unrelated things. But what I hope happens, and I, and I think this, this is where it starts, is that people in, in positions of power understand and recognize that leadership matters, that it's not okay to have a statement in a boardroom or in a, a, a director's office that, that has a vision that absolutely nobody else has any clue about. That was a box-ticking exercise. And that the values are aspirational, but they're not real. Because you have you have a a disharmony at that point. Everybody knows that the espoused vision is is nonsense. And and those situations lead to a lack of trust, they lead to psychological a lack of psychologically healthy spaces. And I think what we need to do is is kind of reset and just ask ourselves some honest vulnerable and authentic questions. Are we proud of our cultures? Like, are you genuinely proud of your culture? And do I love my practice? And if the answer to that question is no, then you have to ask yourself why, and then get to work on fixing it. Because once you get vulnerable and you get willing to ask that question, rather than blaming millennials for not wanting jobs, how about let's turn the the, the spotlight on ourselves and go, am I providing a place where other human beings can thrive in a you know, really sustainable way. And there are so many fun ways that that could be, that's when creativity can be unleashed. And I think that changes things. So what I hope is that people take leadership seriously and start to to work hard on their vision, on their culture, and creating spaces that, that other humans can be really proud to work and thrive. And, and as a part of that, I hope that people take notice of the the, the, the non-clinical skills, the professional skills, and work on those. And I genuinely believe if we do those things, then veterinary medicine gets better. And it can get better quite quickly under those circumstances. So I hope that that's what happens. I see the shoots of change, are, they're happening. People are more open to that message. I don't think there's any option but for people to be open to it. Now we have to have people that are able to execute on those changes. So whilst it's easy to get distracted by all the technology and the speed and all of those things, a shiny hospital and a CT scanner, they're not going to save your Kevin Bacon if (laughs) you do not have a culture that people are engaged in and proud to work in. You'll still have a revolving door. You'll just have a very expensive, stressful revolving door that that would be that's maybe not a prediction that's just a message a plea a beg whatever it takes <laughs> for for leaders to to lead on this and everybody to let's work together to make this place better
0: I love that messaging. I can get on board with that messaging. And you have a whole community centered around a lot of that messaging. So if anybody listening hasn't found your podcast and the VetX community, tell us tell us more about it real quick.
1: Yeah, so VetX is a place where, for, where clinicians can go and learn professional skills. And then I, I work personally. Um, uh, so that, that website for veterinarians is vetxinternational.com. And then I, I have a leadership group. That's on drdavenickel.com that people can find the leadership stuff. You know, if you're dipping your toe into it, there's a ton of free ro- resources from webinars. I've been podcasting on Blunt Dissection Podcasts. We, we produce the Veterinary Business Success Podcast and that Vet Life Podcast. There's really something for everyone on those sites. There's a oh, ton man. of content. And I, was, I was
0: going with Blunt Dissection, but you're yeah. way, way broader than, there's a than lot. that in the there's podcast. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah exactly. Very, very cool. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Pleasure, Cassie. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I hope you guys had as much fun as we did. Thank you, Dave, so much for joining me. I really hope we can do it again sometime. It was just, just so much fun. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.